1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the second part of the verse says, And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All sin. All past sin. All the current sin. All the future sin. And that is not a license to go sin. But, wow, that motivates us to want to live for Christ. Great songs this morning. Would you join me? Acts chapter number 7. Acts chapter 7. Making our way there. And if you have your Bible with you in leather and paper like I have, or in some kind of tablet, phone, uh, form, whatever you have there electronically, you're going to have an advantage. Some verses will be on the screen. But to just have the passages open in front of you to be able to refer back, you will have a major advantage. Also, uh, if you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks, you too have an advantage. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling. I have not really pre-thought exactly how much review to do this morning. Um, because we're in the middle of a sermon... Uh, we're in the middle of a long chapter in Acts chapter 7. It's a sermon by a man named Stephen, a very prominent man in the early church. Um, it was one of the first deacons, and apparently the first one chosen, the most obvious choice when the early church, the first church of Jerusalem, had a chance. Uh, Jesus chose the apostles, and then they get to nominate someone as deacons. Uh, this is the guy, and he is just really, really special, a man that was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of power, full of wisdom. And full of truth. I mean, just full. He apparently saw things before anyone else saw it. And so we're in the middle of his sermon. And really, it's not just sermon. It's a defense in front of the Sanhedrin court. And understand, this is the same court that ends up putting Christ to death. It's the same group of people, the Jewish leaders, who hunted down Jesus literally all the way to crucifixion. And now Stephen is giving a defense in front of them uh, for some charges that have been brought against him. And we're in the middle of his attempt. But really, he's not trying to get free. He's not going to make it. He's going to die. Uh, they're going to stone him with stones by the end of this chapter. They're going to take him out of the city and kill him. But we're in the middle of his defense. So I need to do some review. Each week, I'm, I'm probably going to need to do a little more area. We're covering literally hundreds and hundreds of years of material uh, because Stephen is taking us on a journey. So here's the scene. It's the time of Christ. This is where we're starting. We're in the book of Acts. 2,000 years ago to us, it's the time of Christ. Jesus has been dead for just a few years. The church is growing and multiplying in the city of Jerusalem. Stephen, not just being a, a deacon, he's out among the synagogues and he's teaching and preaching about Christ. And these Jews oppose him and they get in these debates and he always wins. They can't handle the truth and the spirit with which he spoke. So finally they grab him, take him down to the Sanhedrin, and here's their charges. This man continuously speaks against Moses and against the law and against this place. So the charge is he's against Israel. He's against the nation of Israel. He's against the law of Moses. Particularly they think he's against the temple. Because this is their, their charge. He didn't teach this, but this is their version of it. He says that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy the temple and all the customs that Moses set up, all the ceremonial law and all the sacrifices are going to go away. He actually has the audacity to imply that the temple one day will not be standing where it currently is and that the sacrifices will stop. Well, if you know anything about what's going on in the world today, you know that as of AD 70, after this, about 35 years after this, that's exactly what happened, and Stephen was vindicated after his death. 
But Stephen apparently realizes, he's one of the first, I believe, who realizes that Jesus' death on the cross didn't just save us and washes away our sins by his blood, but it makes all those animal sacrifices in the temple that really haven't been saving anyone, only covering sins, not washing them away. Now all those sacrifices are obsolete. We don't need that anymore. And so the temple really is useful as a place of prayer and as a meeting place for the church. We don't need to do any more. Maybe he said that in the synagogues. I don't know that he did. He probably said something along those lines, and boy, that got him in hot water. And now he's here in front of the Sanhedrin. That takes us to chapter 7. The high priest asked him, and again, this is a room filled with 71 men, and he's on trial, and they're in a semicircle, and here he's standing all alone. And the charge is, are these things so? Hey, is this true, what they're saying about you? And then Stephen launches into this long sermon, and here's what he does. He says, fathers and brothers, hear me. And again, as I've said two or three weeks now, what he's saying is, hey, I'm going to take you on a long journey, and you, Sanhedrin, I know you know all these things. They knew these things far better than we do. They knew it in and out. I mean, they, these are the, the, the elite of the elite in Israel. They know their history. They know their Old Testament. And so Stephen's going to take them on a journey. But he's, what he's doing is, I, it's pretty clear. He's saying, have you ever looked at our history this way? Have you ever connected it the way I want to connect it to you today? You want to know, am I against the temple? I can't just answer that yes or no. I need to show you why they're saying that. What they're saying is not true, but I can't just deny all of it. So let's find out what is happening with the temple. And here's where he begins. Brothers, fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Remember, we had this map. And so over here, here we got the Mediterranean Sea. Here we have Israel. But over here we have like modern day Iraq, Iran. Way down here is the Persian Gulf. It's coming up. What Stephen is telling the Sanhedrin is God appeared to Abraham, when he was down in Mesopotamia, as an idolater. And he called him to leave that, and he goes through the Fertile Crescent. That's how you wouldn't go through the desert. He goes up and around, and he eventually gets to the land of promise. But he got stuck for a little bit up in this place called Haran until his dad died. And then God moved him on down here. The point being that God showed up to him here. He got saved. God promised, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Even though he's a polytheistic pagan idolater, God in his grace just started a relationship. Abraham's like, okay, I'll take it. He believes. He starts the journey with God. Finally, he makes it into the promised land, but he has no kids. And now Abraham is in Israel, and God promises Abraham all this land. I'm going to give it to you and your offspring. But he doesn't even have kids. But God says five things in verses 6 and 7. And you really need to note this. This is key. We're going to, when we start reading in a moment in, in verse 17, we're kind of talking about these two verses. Stephen is telling the Sanhedrin, says, When our forefather Abraham, now Stephen is here 2,000 years ago to us. Stephen's going back 2,000 years earlier to him. 4,000 years ago to us, to Abraham. When he finally gets to the promised land, God says, Abraham, this is going to be the land of you and your descendants. But... Not yet. Your offspring are going to go into a foreign country and they're going to be sojourners. That's number one. We saw last week how that happened. There's this famine that came and took them and, and eventually took the nation of Israel, Jacob, and his sons down into the land of Egypt. We now know what that strange land was. So they're going to be sojourners. Number two, there's going to be slavery. Where that nation is going to put them in slavery. Number three, it's going to be affliction. Not just like, hey, you need to work and kind of pay your way around here. No, it's going to be hard slavery and affliction. But then God says in verse 7, the fourth promise and the fifth one, and this is important, catch this, 
I will judge the nation that has put your descendants in slavery. And then the fifth thing, they will eventually make their way out and come back to this land that you're standing in, Abraham. And they will worship me in this land. So these five things have to happen. And Abraham dies with these promises. Abraham has no children, but God keeps his promises to him. He ends up having eight sons, and the second one's name was Isaac. And that's the chosen one. Not the first one, not the third through the eighth one. It's that second son, Isaac. Isaac ends up having two sons, and it's the second son is the chosen one. It's not Esau, it's Jacob. Jacob ends up having, Stephen's covering all this. Jacob has 12 sons. They're the patriarchs, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. God ends up changing Jacob's name to Israel. That's where we get the name of Israel. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes. And now, last week, this is our review of that. The 10 older brothers end up hating the 11th born brother because he was favored. His name was Joseph. The 10 old, I mean, they hate him. They want to kill him. They would have killed him, but the oldest one talked them out of killing him. And while he's away briefly out in a faraway land, Joseph's just visiting. While Reuben's gone, the other nine sell him into slavery. And so here the story goes. And Stephen, 2,000 years ago to us, is now talking about something that's like 18, 1,900 years before them. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. And so what he's saying is, hey, Sanhedrin, our forefathers... I don't know what tribe Stephen was from. or We know the high priest was from the tribe of, of Levi, and he would have been in on this. Our forefathers hated their brother so much they sold him into slavery and he went down into Egypt and they thought they were through with him, but they were not. Because while he was in Egypt, God blessed him. And he ends up being sold to a man named Potiphar and he just, God blesses him in his house. He ends up running the whole house until his wife falsely accuses him of a crime. He goes to prison. This man, Joseph, goes to prison. God blesses him in prison. He ends up running the whole prison. Finally, ultimately, can't go through all the details like we did last week. But Pharaoh has a dream, and it's a two-part dream, and no one can interpret his dream. And finally, people remember, there is this Hebrew that's in prison, and he can interpret dreams. And so through a miraculous series of events, this slave boy from Canaan, a Hebrew, is standing in front of the most powerful man in the world, and Pharaoh says, I'm having these dreams. He tells the dream. Joseph gets the interpretation from God and says, Pharaoh, God has showed you what is coming. There's going to be seven years of abundant crop. I mean abundant crop. And that's going to be followed by seven years of extreme famine. What you need to do is appoint someone to, in these seven years of abundance, like save a lot of the food and set it aside for those latter seven years of famine. And if you'll do that, you'll make it. In fact, you'll be able to sell some of the grain that is, that is so abundant in the first seven years. Pharaoh believes it. And he says, okay, we need somebody to do that. You're the man. And he appoints him as the number two man in all of, Israel, in all of Egypt. And sure enough, Jacob, Jacob start, or Joseph starts setting aside all the, all the food, and Egypt just becomes abundant with grain. And then the famine hits, and we're almost done with our review. Up in Canaan, the ten brothers, and now the younger brother of Joseph and their dad, Jacob, they're living their life. They forgot about Joseph. Jacob thinks his son is dead. That was the lie they proposed about their brother. But then the famine hit, and they needed food. And Jacob the father heard, for some reason, there's grain down in Egypt. They're hit with the same famine, but for some reason, they were prepared. And he sends his sons down to get food. There go the ten sons. 
They go to their brother. They have no clue that Joseph is the one that is in charge of the food. Joseph recognizes his brothers. Sure enough, they bow down in front of him as he had a dream when he was a younger child. His ten brothers are bowing before them. He does not let them know who he is the first time. They get the grain. They go back home. That food runs out. They end up coming back to the land a second time for more food. And on the second occasion, Joseph makes himself known to his brothers They're afraid he's going to kill them, but he says, no, God has worked this out. God sent me in. He let all those horrible things happen to me to save our nation. And ultimately, Joseph said, please bring dad down. Don't let dad stay up there with the family. Just bring him down here. we got so much food, and I'm in charge of it. And Jacob came down, and all the tribes came down, and now they're all living in Egypt. But as we finished last week, verse 15, Jacob died, and Joseph and all the brothers died, and time just keeps marching on. And what was that dynamic like? So the famine's over. Man, Joseph's a hero. We're letting those Hebrews live over there in the land of Goshen, this certain section, because they're a little different and they look a little different. But they, all of a sudden, they just continuously keep multiplying and, and increasing, and their flocks are increasing, and their herds are increasing. And man, they're having kids. They go down 75 people. And it just as the years are going by, they're just abundant. I mean, they're like rabbits, these Hebrews. These Hebrews are just taking over. And that takes us to verse 17. Would you look at verse 17 this morning? Stephen, still talking to the Sanhedrin, giving them, he's trying to connect the dots. He's wanting them to see certain things in relation. They think, are you, are you like against the nation of Israel, man? Are you against this land? Are you against the temple? Are you against Moses? And off he goes, giving all this story. He's already highlighted Abraham. And now he's highlighted Joseph. And finally he gets... To Moses, verse 17. Jacob and the patriarchs are dead. Time has moved on. Can I just kind of insert? It's going to be really confusing if I don't insert this. Where we're jumping in verse 17 is roughly around 300 and some years. Let's just call it 350 years into the slavery. The Sanhedrin knows their history Stephen does not have time to go through. The Bible does not give us the details of exactly how the Egyptians put the Hebrews in slavery. I don't know how it started. I can't tell you. I can imagine they're there. It's great. Man, one of your forefathers was great. He saved us and you guys. Moved you down here. This is wonderful. You guys are really flourishing over there. We're noticing. You know what? There was no bloodshed. This is my mind. I'm reading between the lines. There's no bloodshed. There's no war. So you guys can't just like move in here and like live for free. So you kind of need to pay your way. And I'm sure it started out some work and they just keep increasing more and more. And the Egyptians are not increasing at the rate that the Hebrews are. And finally, they ultimately, they put them into slavery. We don't know all the details of exactly how that happened. But verse 17, we're about 350 years into the slavery. Here we go. But as the time of the promise drew near, Time of the promise drew near. I'm going to ask you already, which promise? Were you paying attention earlier? Which promise? There's a promise that's drawing near. Something God had told, which says, which God had granted to Abraham. So one of the promises, or two, or more, but I believe it's two. The promise, the time of the promise, which God had granted to Abraham, it's drawing near. It's drawn near. Verse 17. So what happens. The people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Again, they just continue. They've been doing this. And now it appears, verse 17, we hit this point, like they're increasing even more and more. Until there arose over Egypt another king 
who did not know Joseph. Again, we're 300, this is 400 and some years now past Joseph. He's dead. Jacob's gone. This is a story in the history books. Now, yeah, okay, I've heard something. But he doesn't know that. He's not really putting weight to that. So much so, verse 19. Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, it was that Pharaoh, that leader, that ruler of Egypt, verse 19, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. You men know this on the Sanhedrin. This particular Pharaoh made our forefathers take, it was their male babies, it wasn't the female babies, take their male babies and expose them to the elements, expose them to animals, whatever, ultimately making them throw their male babies into the Nile River. They were for, you either do that or you will pay dearly. And they could just kill them. They could just kill the people. And so this, all of a sudden, at this point, is, is really making Egyptian slavery get worse and worse. And the affliction is really, it's not just the work, and it's not just the beatings and the demands. Now it's like they're killing our kids. They're forcing us. This particular Pharaoh is killing their male babies so that they would not be kept alive. Verse 20. At this time, so that's the setting. At this time, Moses was born. Moses was born when babies are being killed. Who's that sound like? Verse 20. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. We could just really stop it. He was beautiful. There are Jewish traditions and records that talk about how beautiful Moses, beautiful. I mean a beautiful baby. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up, brought up for three months, and his father, for three months, his father and his mother were able to hide him. And so they're raising him up. But apparently after three months, they couldn't hide him anymore. Now it's their turn. They have to expose little baby Moses. But they're going to take a shot. They have faith. They're going to do something a little different. They end up, you know, from Exodus, they end up putting him in a basket. And they end up putting pitch and all those things that would waterproof the basket. And they send the older sister Miriam, and she kind of takes the basket and over, puts it in the Nile River. Rather than just throwing him in the Nile River, we're going to put him in this basket. And she kind of puts him afloat in this certain area, and that's, they have a hope. Maybe, just maybe, this certain woman will find him. Well, sure enough, Stephen's telling the story. Verse 20 again. At this time Moses was born, he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. Let that sink in. Pharaoh, of all the people, here comes Pharaoh's daughter, and she ends up spotting him and has her women. Go get that basket. I hear a little baby in there. And all of a sudden they go and long, won't go into it all. But older sister Miriam is close enough nearby that when this discovery is made, here she comes up, and then Pharaoh's daughter realizes, this is one of the Hebrew babies. What she should have done by law is, you're not getting by with that, and threw him out to the crocodiles in the Nile River. That's what should have happened. That's not what happened. And so here's Miriam, and little girl, and ends up, hey, you want me to go get, his, you want me to go get somebody to nurse this child? Because Pharaoh's daughter... She hadn't been pregnant. She can't nurse this child. Yes, go do that. And here goes Miriam, and of all the people she could have got, she actually goes and gets Moses' real mother and brings back that. And then, long story short, Pharaoh's daughter says, I'll pay you wages if you will nurse this child until he gets a little bit older, and then he'll be my child. And so, in a strange way, Moses' mother ends up getting paid 
to be his mother by Pharaoh's daughter, who ends up actually taking the child, naming him Moses because she drew him out of the water, and then she adopts him, and he becomes an Egyptian in essence. Verse 22, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This is how he grew up. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. In other words, the words of Stephen were powerful. The deeds, there are some traditions that he led, military victories, big ones. Bottom line, when this guy, he hit a point. When he spoke, it carried authority. Verse 23. But now Stephen changes the tone. He advances in the story. And he says, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, this Moses, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So somewhere in there, he knows, I don't know when, he knows he's a Hebrew and he's an adopted Egyptian. He's not truly Egyptian. He has learned this. Maybe early on, maybe pre-teens, maybe teenagers, maybe who knows. But now he knows. And at age of 40, God puts it on his heart and he goes and he visits his brothers. Verse 24. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man. And avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Moses is down where the children of Israel are. He sees an Egyptian apparently beating a Hebrew. And the book of Exodus tells us Moses looked this way and that way. He kills the Egyptian and ends up burying him in the sand. Look at the end, verse 25. He supposed that his brothers, children of Israel, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. Surely they've got to see this. That God is sending them salvation through me. This is why this all happened. They don't get it. And on the following day, he appeared to them, to the Hebrews. As they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them. Apparently jumps between two guys. Saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? Stop fighting. You're on the same side. You're the same family. Stop. But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, pushes Moses out of the way, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Let me translate that. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, palace dweller? You think because you're a palace dweller, you're like a hero to us? Verse 28, you think you're better than us? As he pushes Moses away. In verse 28, do you want to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian yesterday, is that what you want to do? You want to kill me? Hey, and right then Moses knows. Y'all saw that? Oh, word spreading, man. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. You think you're a hero because you came and killed an Egyptian for us? What you want to do? Kill me? Bury me in the sand like you did him? Verse 29, and at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Would you notice, number one, this morning, and I'll kind of prepare you. I'm going to spend the longest time this morning on our first point. Looking at verses 17 to 19, God continues to keep his promises. There was a point last week or the week before. uh, It was last week. God kept his promises, keeps his promises to Abraham, and now God continues to keep his promise. Verse 18, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, then these things started happening. And God is just continuing to keep his promise. Hey, can I point out something? I'm going to do a little different. I'm going to do a basic, quick hitter, what's going on in this passage. Uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but I want to kind of pull a a few lessons from that. But for one, let's note this. Stephen's defending 
his stance about the nation of Israel and Moses and the law and all the charges that are against him. And when he answers it, I found it strange. He spends about six, maybe seven verses on Abraham. And then he transitions to about eight verses on Joseph. He's later on going to mention David briefly and Solomon, I think, maybe more briefly. So he's going to hit some of the big names. He's mentioned Isaac and Jacob very briefly. But now he gets to Moses and where those have had like six, seven verses, eight verses, verse or two later on. He's actually going to give 28 verses. So all week I've been, not, not all week, all month, I've kind of not been lazy, just real simple in our sermon titles. You see the sermon title? It's, you're going to keep seeing that same sermon title, right? So a few weeks ago, what was it? Stephen presents lessons from Abraham. Two weeks ago, Stephen presents lessons from Joseph. And this week, boy, this guy's real creative, isn't he? Stephen presents lessons from Moses. But really, this is part one. This is part one. Why does he spend so much time? Would you write this down? Because Stephen has been accused of blaspheming and opposing Moses. Obviously now, he's going to honor Moses. He's going to spend much more time covering the life of Moses and the influence. Because in the Jewish mind, this this may sound strange to you, but this is really the way they thought. Of all the patriarchs, of all their ancestors, Abraham, David, Elijah, you name it. In their mind, the highest of the high is Moses. And so Stephen knows this, and he's going to spend extra time in honor of Moses. I'm not against Moses. I know Moses. I know what happened. I'm for Moses. I'm for all of that. But let's look at the life of Moses. And so he launches into that. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people, pay attention here, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. So here's what's happening. There's this long time. Stephen has jumped from the life of Joseph. Now he's jumped 350 years into the time of slavery. In fact, Again, we don't know how the slavery happened. All we know is that the more they kept increasing, the harder the work got, according to the book of Exodus. And the more they would afflict them, but it didn't work. Like the Jews just kept increasing all the more. And then finally there's this man who comes on the scene, and he doesn't really, he's he's not tracking, he doesn't care. No, No doubt someone come up and said, but Pharaoh, killing their babies? Do you know what that's going to, he's on a mission Our increased workload and our increased beatings are not working. We're going to start exterminating these people. We're going to start killing their male babies. We're going to do something about this population. But my Lord, do you not understand? Joseph and I, cool story, bro. Cool story. Sound like a great guy. Did a lot of stuff for us and them. All I know, these people are like rabbits. They're overrunning the land. If they ever link up with one of our enemies, they're going to defeat us in battle. Or if they ever get this notion to stand up against it, they're going to leave the land. We're going to lose our workforce. No, we're getting them under control. Start killing their babies. And off he goes. One thing I want to point out, and I hope I don't spend too long, because I think it's a simple thought, but while we're here, I want to give you a simple thought. Look at verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near. I found this interesting. Forgive me if you think uh, much ado about nothing. The life of Moses can be put neatly into three sections of time. We know from the scripture these dates. So follow me, I'm getting to throw some numbers at you. Get your mind ready. We know that he ends up living to be 120 years old. I've just thrown out to you, and I can defend it. It's, it's, it is accurate. We're now in the 350th year of the slavery. He is not yet born. 
His 120 years can be neatly broken down into three sections. The first 40 years, he's this son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he's, in, in essence, in Pharaoh's court. Well, we saw at verse 23 that after 40 years, God put it in his heart. So as a 40-year-old, he goes down, he kills this Egyptian, but he ends up getting rejected by the people of Israel. And then he goes into this land of Midian, according to verse 29. Now, how long is he in the land of Midian? Verse 30, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, tells us that after 40 years of being there. So watch, 40 years in the house of Pharaoh in Egypt, 40 years out in Midian in the Arabian desert, 40 years there. And then we know that God's going to lead him back and he's gonna, they're going to have the exodus and he's going to lead the children of Israel out. What happens the next 40 years? Do you all remember what happens the, next, the last 40 years of his life? You say, well, I guess he just, they leave Egypt and they march right up into Canaan. No, they don't. They end up doing what? Wandering around. And, and he's there. That's his life. But there's these promises back. Please get this. Verse 6, God told Abraham, your people will be sojourners in a strange land. wonder what's going to take them down there. A famine. And then those people are going to put them in slavery. Happened. And it's going to be affliction for 400 years. It's happening. That has happened. But God gives them these two promises. But then, after that, and by the way, that 400 years was a round number. It's not a precise specific. I think there's a reason. But then after, after that time, I'm going to come and I'm going to judge this nation. Well, this is one of the promises that's drawing near in verse number 17. I'm going to judge this nation, and then they will come into this land. But we know there's a 40-year gap between that. Here's my point. God knows that 350 years in, before Moses has been even born, God knows that the actual judgment on the land of Egypt is 80 years away. He's going to present himself at year 40. They're going to reject him. He's going to go out into the desert. And then after eight, at 80 years old, he'll lead out the exodus. And God knows that actually making it into the promised land, the second part of verse 7, that's 120 years away. So this is the thought, real simple, that hit me this week. God knows the two promises in verse 7 that were made to Abraham are 80 and 120 years away. But the text says, but as the time of the promise drew near, it's almost here. It's here. It's in essence here. Would you write that down? God knew the promises of verse 7 were 80 to 100 years away, but God says that's near. No offense if you're here this morning and you're 80 or 90, or if you're watching online and you're 80 or 90. You feel like you've lived a long time, and I know that many in our society would look at you as old, right? You're old. You're 80 years old. Uh, we don't have anybody on earth that's 120. That'd go back to 1903. But here we are in 1923. If we were to look back at 1903, what God says about 1903 as compared to where you're at today, God says, yeah, it's, it's here. It's near. God is eternal. We're here in this little thing called time. And what you need to do in your mind is just go back, 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 back. Like go, go back, go way past the creation mark and just keep on trucking. God is, and then now go this way. And God is eternal and it just never stops. And so when we have this little thing called time, 120 years, that's like, yeah, it's here. It's, it's here. It's, it's, it's basically right now I need to get this show on the road. I've got to keep these promises. 120 years, God, that's a long time. That, that's like nothing. That's nothing. That's a breath. Second thing I want to point out this morning, and, 
and this is where I may be chasing a little rabbit, but I'm going to ask for your patience. Look at verse 17 again. I want to I offer something to you. But as the pro- time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, watch what happened. What is leading? What's driving all of this? The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose this other ruler. Can I tell you on this thought? In their day, the way that wealth and blessings were measured, yes, there was gold, property, absolutely, some buildings. But primarily, you're a blessed person if you had like a big family and lots of descendants and lots of flocks and lots of herds. And so here the children of Israel are living in the land of Israel, in Egypt, and they're just increasing at a far more rapid rate than the Egyptians. The Egyptians are like, they outnumber us. How did that happen? They came down here, 75 people, and now they're like, more than us. What in the world is going on? Again, people are like rabbits. Watch, though. This is something that struck me this week, and I think there's a lesson for us. Would you write this first thought? You'll not see it on the screen yet. Just write the first line or two. The very thing that represented their blessings also led to their struggle. Think about that. And this is where I need to drill down for just a moment. The very thing that represented was the measure of their great blessings those blessings actually are connected, and we could even say lead to their struggle. Hey, why are these people in bondage? And why are you so hard on them? Why are you killing their babies? Because they're just multiplying. Man, they're blessed. That led to this other reaction, this negative reaction. I want to propose to you this morning, so too with us, there's an epidemic in America It's in all ages, but listen, it is really strong with our young people right now. Our country is filled with people that are chasing, and they really believe that certain blessings are the be-all, end-all. Strangely, if we're not careful, the very things that we desire the most can also present unique challenges. And now would you write this on the screen? I'm going to present four of them to you. Americans, we would love as individuals to have an abundance of money. Like, I need, I need a lot of money. I need an abundance of money. That's on the table. An abundance of beauty. Beauty. I mean, man, probably more than ever in the history of our country, people are pursuing beauty because they spend lots of time looking at other beautiful people and like, i got to be beautiful. If only I could be as beautiful as them. That would fix everything. And I need to be famous. Has there ever been a time in our country where people can actually pursue fame like they do today? Before you had to hope to be discovered or go through, pay your dues. Now, get yourself a little talent, make a little home video, throw it out there, get some likes, and all of a sudden, more likes and more likes, more videos, and somebody starts, hey, let's pay you a little money to do that. And next thing you know, boom, this person just came out of nowhere. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be beautiful. Everybody wants to be super wealthy. And everybody wants to be very high-ranking. Very high rank. A lot of power. Did you write that note? Notice. The very things that represented Israel's blessings were also the things that led to their struggle. And I believe that sometimes the things that we desire in our country, like abundance of money, abundant beauty, abundant fame. I need to be like really famous. And people just crave it. What would that be like? If I could only have this a lot of power and be over other people, man, that's where it would be. What would that be like? Well, I want to propose to you it would come with a lot of struggles that you don't anticipate. While you're writing that, keep 
writing and listening at the same time. Can I propose to you this morning, and you're not going to believe me, okay? You're not going to believe me. You're not going to believe me, but I'm going to be honest with you. We looked at this back in Matthew. It's something that Jesus said. More money. That's what, if we just have more money. More money means greater expectation. Who are you? Come on, man. You got a bunch of money. The least you could do is everybody has expectation if you have a lot of money. But God has greater expectation. More money is more responsibility. Not just for mankind. Y'all know God gives affluence for influence. It's not just an accident. I'm giving, God's like, I'm giving you greater affluence for greater influence. I'm giving you greater income for greater impact. And I understand, please understand, in a moment, I plan to balance this in in a moment. God blesses people, and he gives you good things to enjoy, but just know, if I have greater money, you're going to give an account for what you have. And most all of us in here have more than somebody else. And we're going to give an account for more that we have. We have more than most people in the rest of the world. Let me put this one this way. If I could just be more beautiful, if I could just be more famous... More beauty and more fame is a greater opportunity to be more proud. Hey, let me let you know a little secret. Beautiful people, they figured out that they're beautiful. Because everybody keeps staring at them. They figured it out. And if they're not careful, they'll believe the lie. I must be a better person because of how God decided to make me look. Hey, When most people in Anderson will just go to a restaurant after church today with their family and enjoy a meal, minding their own business, the beautiful people in the room have a struggle that is going on because they can't just have a meal with their family because there's two or three other people trying to make eye contact and flirt with them. You think I'm joking. This is real. They have opportunities for fornication and to commit sin and to be maritally unfaithful. Other people have to go pursuing that. Beautiful people, it's just like put right before them. They're going through things. You're like, well, God can give me that challenge all he wants. Okay, I'm just saying, be careful what you ask for. And most Americans, most, think this way. If I just had a high rank, I'll tell you who I'd like to be. I'd like to be my supervisor. If I had his job, I'd do it whole. Okay. No, I want to be my, my supervisor's man. I want to be the owner. Okay. Do y'all understand that most people in America, when, they're, when that clock hits that certain point, they clock out, they get in the vehicle, and they have literally left work at work. But when you have a high rank, you don't leave work at work. You take it with you, and you have to think about it, and emergencies happen, and on your way, and the day's off, like it's still there. It comes with greater responsibility. So if you're sitting here, and I don't take what I've just said incorrect. Remember the whole context. The blessings of Israel end up actually leading to their struggles. So Jeff, are you saying that it's like sinful to be wealthy or sinful to be beautiful or sinful to be famous or to have a high rank? No, it is not sinful. In fact, I want to propose to you that these have great advantages and they can be used to great advantage in eternity. I just don't find many people stewarding those things very well. So if I could propose this to you. Trust God's wisdom to give you what he's given you. And number two, seek God's wisdom to help you 
guide and manage and steward what level of blessings, special blessings he's given you. And you'd think I'd be done with that point, but I'm going to go one level further. And then we'll move to the second point, and it's not, not a long point. You with me? Watch. We just talked about special blessings, abundance of money, like gorgeous, really famous, really high-ranking, powerful. Man, that'd be great. Possibly. But what I want to now talk about is just normal blessings. Will y'all give me a moment? Stay with me. Israel's blessings actually led to their struggles. Now I want to talk about common blessings. I want to give you three. Common blessing number one, the ability to see. I think most of us here, we have the ability to see. Don't take that lightly. Y'all hear me talk about this a lot. Man, Jeff talks about this a lot. I am really thankful for the ability. God has given me for now the ability to see, and I don't want to take it lightly. Number two, the ability to hear. And number three, the ability to walk. Don't take it for granted. The day's coming. You're not going to be able to hear like you do now, and you're not going to be able to walk like you do now, and you're not going to be able to see like you do now. In fact, you could lose all of that. There are people in our county who used to have it, and now they can barely see, they can barely hear, hear, and they can't walk. But that's not my message. What I want to propose to you is even these common blessings can actually become, and they're wonderful things, these are great things, but they can become a hindrance. Y'all know, you you know what we like to do with our ability to see. When it's up to us and we're not being forced to look at something, what do we get to look at? I I want to look at beautiful things and interesting things. What do you find? It varies among us, but when it's up to us, we like looking at things we think beautiful things, interesting. That's interesting. Hey, this is interesting. What do we like to do? We like to listen to beautiful things. Oh, turn that up. That's my favorite. Oh, that's my favorite instrument. That's the best group ever. That's my favorite singer. Turn that up. We like to listen to interesting things. Hey, turn that up. That's interesting. Let's see what she's got to say. Turn that up. And then we have these legs, and we go where we want to go, and we hop in these cars, and we just go where we want to go. These are great blessings, but they, our common blessings become hindrances when we don't stop going. Hang with me. It's great to go and walk where you want to go. But if every day you don't stop walking, stop walking, stop looking at other interesting, beautiful things, close your eyes, stop, turn off interesting things, even good sermons and podcasts and those things, turn them all off and like just get really still, stop looking at anything else, And turn off all other sounds unless some way it helps you. You say, what do I need to do that for every day? To literally just seek the face of God. Where are you at, God? I've had a lot of distractions today, Lord. I finally got it quiet. I've got a few minutes here. I got it quiet. It's just me and you. I'm not moving around. And then hear his voice. Hearing is awesome. What I'm asking you this morning, would you do this? Make a make note to self. This ability to see and to hear and to walk is a great thing. Bring God into those blessings more and more. God, look what you've done. Lord, listen to what you've done. Lord, thank you for letting me. But also, don't just bring him into them. Bring them to a stop. Cause them to cease so that you can focus just on his face and his voice. I'm not going to have time to hit the Ecclesiastes passage. Long story short, 
Ecclesiastes 11.9 to 12.1. You go read it. I had my devotions there recently. You know who it's to? Young people. You know what it says? Hey, youth, young man. I'm going to translate, paraphrase. Enjoy life. Young people, enjoy life. If you're young, enjoy it. It's a gift, but it's vanity. Doesn't mean it's sinful and bad. It means it's fleeting. It's a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. And there's some old people in the room going, I'm with Solomon right there. And it just some of these times these young people, they just need to realize and enjoy the vibrancy because Ecclesiastes 12 once says, the day's coming when you're going to have no pleasure. It's going to be hard to find pleasure. Like the days are going to be long and painful and dark and silent. It's like, I just don't have a lot of pleasure anymore. Enjoy it. But while you're enjoying it, know this. Don't just, okay, great. Follow the lead of my heart. No, as you're following what your heart wants to do, know this. You will give an account to God. There's the balance. So enjoy the blessing of God. Just know I'm going to give an account to God for what I do. Rid your life of pain. Rid your life of evil. And remember your creator in the days of your... Solomon's like, dude, I've been young before and I'm getting older and I've seen old people. And I know the attitude. Man, if I could just go back. If you're young, you're in it now. And I know there's people right now listening here saying, Jeff, you're in it. Okay. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. And I know there's some like, Jeff, you're in it, dude. You're only 53. Well, from where I'm sitting, I'm not in it anymore, okay? If you're in it, enjoy it. But remember, you're going to give an account to God and remember your creator. Bring him into it. Number two, Acts chapter 7. Verses 20 to 22, God saves Moses in order to save Israel. God saves Moses in order to save Israel. So there's this Pharaoh who dealt shrewdly with our race, and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Verse 20, look at it. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. I want to propose this. I wouldn't die for this, no, but I I believe it. I want to write it down. How aware were the children of Israel of their time frame? This promise that God made to Abraham about this 400 years, it's in Genesis 15. I'm going to assume it was common knowledge Apparently, this is going to happen. We're in slavery. Hey, but God told us it's 400 years. We're at the beginning. Oh, no, we're at the middle. Hey, we're getting. So here they are, 350 years in. And there's still some time to go. Could it be, I'm going to propose to you that Satan himself, not just some demonic force, Satan himself is aware of the time frame, and I believe Satan prompts the heart of this particular Pharaoh to start killing these babies because he does the same thing later on at the time of Christ when he prompts the heart of Herod the Great, supposedly, to kill the babies of Bethlehem at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Satan is prompting all of this evil and baby killing and he still does it all around the world Satan for some reason loves killing babies babies were dying in Moses time babies were dying in Jesus time they had that in common babies are dying in our time at still an alarming rate no matter what the law is now people jump states and many states are very welcoming but God's in control Satan's trying to kill all the babies. Maybe he realizes some deliverer must be about to come. I'm going to stamp them out. Pharaoh, his his thought is, I just want to kill their babies. They're males. 
this curtail this population growth. But God is sovereign, and it's in this time that Moses was born. Would you look briefly at verse 20, and then I'll have a thought out of verse 22. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Now listen, everybody listen. I know when you were a baby, you were beautiful. I know you were. And the only thing more beautiful than you when you were a baby is your babies when they were babies. I know you had the prettiest babies. But the Bible says <laughs> Moses was beautiful in God's sight. Like, again, the Jews had these traditions, these records, supposedly. Like, off the chain, most beautiful baby. I mean, crowd stopper. This is the idea. People don't know. What in the, and all of a sudden, oh my word, this is the, and God being sovereign. You remember a while ago where I said about wealth and beauty and fame and high rank are not of themselves simple things. They can be useful and advantages when stewarded the right way. God is using, I believe God uses the beauty of this, this baby, Moses. We know from Exodus chapter 2 that this baby is crying. And finally, here comes Pharaoh's daughter, she's going down to the Nile River to bathe. She has her women with us. There's this basket. There's this crying. And here comes this. They bring it over to her. I don't know exactly. I don't know the details. I can kind of imagine. Even the way he cries was beautiful. And it was like pitiful, pitiful. Not pitiful. That's pitiful. I mean, like it just stirred up pity within her. And again, I can imagine there's this basket, and he's just crying. I mean, he's all by himself, and what in the world? There's a little three-month-old baby, barely spared from dying. They're supposed to throw him in the water, going to take a shot, put him in this basket. He's crying, and then this woman opens it up, and he's crying, and it just breaks her heart. But I can imagine this beautiful, by God's account, baby breaks into a, not a million-dollar smile, billion-dollar smile. And this woman just melts. This is one of the Hebrew kids. They're trying to spare their child. He's supposed to. Dad has a rule. But God was in charge. And God sovereignty, sovereignly made sure that at just this place, at just this time, that this baby would show up to exactly this person, crying just like that, looking just like that, smiling just like that, grabs her heart, and she can't throw him into the water. I'm going to keep him. Man. But he's one of the, I'm going to keep him. Well, dad knows that she's not been pregnant. And just like, she's just kind of like sneaking around. Oh, yeah, I had a child when you weren't looking. Like, no. Dad, again, I'm reading between the lines. At some point, Pharaoh has to be presented with this option. Dad, look. But he he is the cutest little guy. I've ever, I have never in all my... Are you sure... What can one Hebrew boy hurt? <laughs> he can't do anything. One, what can one little boy do? We'll keep this one alive. He is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And we're going to raise him as an Egyptian. Verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. He's mighty in his words and deeds. Hey, I didn't research this, so forgive me. Unless they've come up with some stronger theories recently, 
Do y'all know they still don't know how the Egyptians built those great pyramids? Don't blow by verse 22. Don't blow by it. Moses was instructed and trained in all the wisdom, all the geometry, stuff that we still don't know. How in the world did they, I mean, those are, how did they get that? How did they move these? And how do they fit so perfectly? And, And the sun comes, and it's like, how in the, all the geometry, all the philosophy, all the arithmetic, he's trained in it all. This guy He's got, this, is, this is the number one nation in the world. I mean, he's learning stuff we don't know. You say, we have a bad habit. We're very arrogant this day. We look back at people a long time ago and think, well, they're ignorant and stupid. And they, weren't, they didn't have a lot of like, mental ability. Oh, their mental ability was way above ours. We've just accumulated from what they've learned. Brilliant. He learned it all. And he becomes very powerful. But what's Stephen's point? Would you write this down? The ESV Study Bible writes the following. Stephen emphasizes that the one who delivered Israel... What's Stephen's point? He's emphasizing that the one that delivered Israel was educated in a secular setting. Hence, God accomplished salvation in an unexpected way. He's not trained in any of our schools. This Moses that you love so much was trained down in Egypt. That's where he got his education. Hence, God accomplished salvation in an unexpected way, as he has now done through Jesus of Nazareth. Could it be simply that Stephen is planting seeds? You guys love Moses. You're you're so defensive of Moses. You think I'm against Moses? Do you not understand that he got his education down in Egypt? They instructed him in their ways. Read your Bible, guys. And I understand, please understand, God is sovereign and God's Holy Spirit inspired Moses what to write. But he also uses people's personality. Read the first five books of the Bible. There is no doubt. This man was educated in poetry. I think it was Stuart Custer brought these out. Poetry. He wrote wrote poetry and music and law and history. Nobody knows the history of how the whole world began. Moses was used to write. Again, God showed it to him. This guy knows arts and crafts and the music and all the things that go around the temple and building and all of those things. He knows it. He's been trained and taught. Not an accident that God used him. And yes, God saves in ways that we don't expect. The way of salvation, no one on earth would ever say, you know, the way I picture salvation is we're these sinners, and there is this God who's holy, but he loves us, and he sent his son. He's going to send his son to become one of us and die the most horrible death on a cross and rise again from the dead, and his blood on that cross is going to pay for our sins. That's kind of how I envision salvation. Nobody ever comes up with that. Only God saves that way. And that's the only way to be saved. Number three this morning. Verses 23 to 29, and we'll really just hit kind of the beginning of that and the end of that. We learn this. Israel rejects their second deliverer. Stephen's trying to get this point across. Israel rejects its second deliverer. When he was 40 years old, verse 23, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him, striking down the Egyptian. Remember, looking this way and that, kills him, buries him in the sand. He, Moses, supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And so the next day he comes back and he sees two Hebrews fighting. He steps between, come on guys, you're on the same side, your family. And one of them, the main one that was being the aggressor and the offender, thrust him away. Who do you think you are? Who made you judge and ruler over us? What are you going to do? You, you want to kill me too, don't you? 
Israel rejects their second deliverer. I can't tell you guys this morning, how old was Moses when he realized he was a Hebrew? I don't know. But I know this. There was a point where God put it on his heart at age 40. And he, this is important, he knows he is Israel's deliverer from slavery. He knows it. I'm that one. And off he goes and does what he does. Write this down. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 shows us that there was actual time in the life of Moses when he made a conscious choice to disassociate himself from the treasures of Egypt. Please don't let this... A while ago I said, hey, that being instructed in, in the ways of the Egyptians, don't just breathe that, hear, hear that lightly. Don't hear this lightly. Moses at age 40 makes a conscious decision. I'm going to disassociate myself with the treasures of Egypt. This is the most powerful, the wealthiest nation in the world at that time. I mean, they had... Do y'all understand? They, don't, they keep saying uh, this South African who's in America. What's his name? He's the wealthiest guy in the world. What's his name? Elon Musk. Probably not. There are Saudis over there that have so much money running around, they're buying golf leagues in America. They're just chucking billions of dollars. It's like throwaway money. They don't know how much money they have. That's what we're talking about in Egypt. Egypt had so much wealth, and here's Moses is in the family. We're not talking about like, yeah, like 15, 20, 50 billionaire. No. That's, no, that's, that's little guys. That's the small fish. This, he's in Pharaoh's family in Egypt. Gold's just running. They're just draped in it. Their houses are just draped. I mean, just super wealthy. And he has it. And he turns his back on that. He disassociates from that to what? To associate himself with just really rich people. No. Fairly rich. But no. Middle class. No. Lower class. No. Hebrew slaves. Why would he do that? Why would he go from, I have all of this at my disposal, and I'm going to go out and link myself with my biological brothers and sisters? Why would he do that? Write it down. Because Moses had great faith, and Moses desired the eternal blessings that God had promised to Abraham. And he knows who he is. And so off he goes. He's called to be the deliverer and to deliver the people of Israel from slavery. And by the way, listen, he's going to do it. He is going to do it. But there's one of these ugly chapters. Last week, one of our ending points was how the Bible doesn't pull punches. Remember how we talked about that? You can throw a punch with full force or you can kind of pull the punch where you're really not trying to do the damage, make it look good. The Bible doesn't pull punches and Stephen doesn't pull punches with the Sanhedrin. Here he goes again. Do you see what he did in verse 24 and verse 28? I know you're writing that note, but do two things at once. Here's what he does. Hey, Sanhedrin, we're really proud of Abraham, but he was a pagan idolater, polytheistic. Historical records say serving the moon god when the real God came and initiated a relationship with him. That's our initiator. That's our first forefather. Oh, by the way, our dad's? hated their younger brother, wanted to kill him and sold him into slavery, and God had sent him, Joseph, to deliver them, but they didn't kill him, sold him into slavery, God still used him. But they were filled with hatred toward him. Ugly chapter. And now here's what Stephen's telling the Sanhedrin. This Moses that you love so much, can we tell the truth? He's a what? Murderer. He didn't go up and say, hey, I'm Moses. Leave him alone. 
You all right, man? He kills him and buries him in the sand. Moses is a murderer. Surely they'll understand. Moses concluded. I'm sorry, let me back up and catch a quick note. Moses knows full well that he has called to deliver the children of Israel. But when he killed the Egyptian, he revealed something that he had made a wrong conclusion. Moses, with all of his good things, wrongly concluded, now pay attention here, that God was relying on his ability. God is relying on my natural human ability. He is the deliverer of Israel. He is called. God, he's turned his back on Egypt. He's associated himself with the children of Israel. Here he goes down, but how is he going to deliver him? He thinks it's his ability. What are you going to do? You're going to kill all the Egyptians one by one? Is that your plan? He thinks that God's great plan is relying on his human ability. I see my time, but I want you to get this. I think this is important. Have you yet, you here this morning, I'm not just talking about Moses. Moses had to learn some lessons, and God's going to send him out into the desert for 40 years to learn some lessons. But have you and I, have we yet, have you yet figured it out that God doesn't need you to do his work? Y'all know this yet? Y'all know that God was working before you, and God's going to be working after you, and he was working before me, and he's going to be working after me. Listen, God can work through you. God can work through me. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your talent. No, you don't understand. I have this great ability, and I have these awesome skills, and I have all this experience, and I'm really talented. That's, that's wonderful. God can use that, and God can do great things through that or in spite of that. And without that. And the only way he will do great things through that is if you take those things and literally consciously put them at the feet of the Lord and say, Lord, this is what little I've got. If you want to use it, you use it. But if you, if you want to use somebody else to do it, then, Lord, you just use somebody else. If you want to use me, if you want to use me in ways that are not right there, or if you want to use me through those, Lord, they're nothing until you empower them. Moses needed to learn a little humility, and God gave it to him on the backside of the desert as a shepherd over like people that were not on the map, hardly. Do you know that he became the meekest man on the face of the earth? The Bible says that. Now, it took 40 years, I believe, but he finally learned humility. He came back a different man. In fact, he maybe went too far. This time, God comes, and he, we'll see it next week, and God's going to say, yep, it's time. You're going to go back. No, no, not me. I'm not your guy, God. I'm just, no, no, no. Before you tried to do it in your own strength, now you're going to do it in my strength. I'm not good at it yet, but I am. You're going to do it. Meekest man on earth. Now, quick side note, quick side note. We know he was the meekest man on the face of the earth because Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 tells us he was. Who wrote Numbers 12, 3? Moses. Now, Moses was a very meek man, more meek than anyone on the face of the earth in that day. Okay, that's when you know the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write. God, do I really have to write it down? Okay, this is embarrassing. Two last thoughts. I'll go quickly. Moses' mind. 
can't y'all see that God has let happen in my life what's happened? It isn't as cut and dry. It's not as easy as I would like it to look. I understand that. But was no one thinking? Did no one think, hey, listen. We were 350 years in. They were killing all those babies. And he survived. And ended up being put up in this position. And he's, he's, he's up there. And now he's actually coming and associate with us. And yes, he's, he's like proved it. He's on our side. He killed that Egyptian yesterday. Could it be? We're now 390 years in. We know it's 400 years. Could this be the man? I think this is the deliverer. They don't do that. They thrust him away. Write it down. Instead of accepting the deliverer, they illustrated exactly what Stephen is going to come to his point in verse 51 to 54 and say that Israel, Sanhedrin, understand. Let's be honest. Let's tell the truth about our people. We're not that good. We have a nasty habit, a nasty pattern. We always oppose God's plan. We always oppose God's people. God sent our people Joseph as the deliverer. They rejected him the first time. God sent Moses as their second deliverer. And rather than accept him and recognize him and pull him in, though they reject him as well and they throw him off. We have a nasty habit of rejecting the deliverers that God sends to us the first time. And they rejected their God-appointed Deliverer. And that takes us to verse 29. You want to kill me, don't you? Just like you killed that Egyptian. Oh, word is spreading. And now, Moses is between two people, two, two difficulties. Difficulty number one, Moses knows his own people hate him. Difficulty number two, he knows that Pharaoh, his adopted grandfather is not going to put up with what he's just done. His adopted grandfather, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, is going to know that he's switched allegiance. He's going to hear that he's killed an Egyptian and in essence trying to start a slave revolt and he will not put up with that and he's going to be after me and to kill me. And that's exactly what happens back in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh sets out to kill Moses. And so what does Moses do? He flees and he runs and he goes into exile of all places. Midian. Arabia. He goes up from Egypt, over through the Sinai Peninsula, and around the upper little prong of the Red Sea, and he goes down in the Arabian Peninsula to a man, probably over 300 miles away. He's got to get far enough away in a place that Pharaoh won't find him. And off he goes. And can we all agree, right now, from age 40 to age 80, Moses looks like anything but a great deliverer. He's just shepherding some flocks of his father-in-law. He met this man, and the man let him marry his daughter, and they have a couple of boys in Arabia. Three thoughts, and we'll be done this morning. Stephen, and again, I'm interrupting. This is not the natural concluding point of this thought on Moses. But for this morning, I want to propose that Stephen continues to make subtle points to the Sanhedrin. Subtle point number one, but not really subtle. You ready? Had Israel accepted their God-given deliverer the first time, they could have been spared 40 years of slavery. Had Israel accepted Moses the first time, the slavery would have stopped right there around the 400. 
Jeff, God said 400. I wonder why it ended up actually being technically 430 according to the Old Testament. Well, one, God used a round number. Number two, they blew it. Listen, how many thousands and tens of thousands of people in, in, in Israel, of, of the Hebrews, died in Egypt as slaves when they really didn't have to, but they did because they rejected the God-appointed deliverer? Number two. I think again in verse number 29 that Stephen's trying to make a point, a subtle point to the Sanhedrin. Again, it's the same one I've made for three weeks now. We're going to continue to make it. It's this one. Listen, God's blessings are not limited to the land of Israel. God blessed Moses. He doesn't say it in the text, but it is there. God blesses him with a wife and with two sons. Not in Israel. Down in the land of Arabia, in the Midianites. God doesn't have to bless his people. Am I against the temple? No, I'm not against the temple. Am I against my own people? No, I'm not against my own people. But we've got to understand, God God chose Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He brought us in. Our our family started having descendants here, but they were preserved down in Egypt. Sanhedrin, do you not realize Moses never, you love him so much, he never entered the promised land. He never set one foot here. He only saw it from the top of a mountain. Then lastly, St. Adrian, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And even when Israel opposes God's plan, well, we don't want that guy. We'll just get another one. No. Even when we oppose God's plan, his promises will still be fulfilled. They're always fulfilled. Moses is the deliverer. And that's where we'll see next week. Once you've written that, would you bow your heads just for a moment, eyes closed. For three weeks now, we've noticed a pattern. Israel rejects their God-appointed deliverers. i got to ask you again this morning. I'm not going to belabor this. If I can help you after the service today, heads bowed, eyes closed. I just need to ask you. If you have yet to recognize and accept our God-given deliverer. See, our God-given deliverer is not Joseph. It was not Moses. Our deliverer is the very Son of God Himself, and God sent Him to die on a cross. He already has come once, and listen to me, most people in the world reject Jesus as the great deliverer. The Jews reject Jesus. Have you rejected him? You say, well, I haven't really rejected him. No, have you accepted him? You say, well, I've not accepted him and I've not rejected him. If you have not accepted him, you are rejecting him. He will come again. You will face the Lord Jesus Christ. If you reject him and then you see him in the next life, you will acknowledge that he is the Lord and he is the deliverer, but it'll be too late. Do it in this life. Do it in this life. Literally, confess your sins to God and say, God, I receive your salvation. I put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Do that. If I can help you, please see me. Just before I pray this morning, those of you who are already Christians, which I'm sure is most in this room, don't let the blessings of God distract you. Don't let your ability to see and hear interesting things and to go where you need to go and hop in the car and drive. It's all wonderful stuff. 
Every day, make sure you stop doing all of those things and just seek the face and the voice of God. And if God's blessed you with special blessings, you're going to give an account of those special blessings. So I invite you right now, like have a conversation with God right now. Lord, you know I'm in one of those categories that we spent so long on in that first point. And God, it's a fearful thing. I thank you. And you've given it to be enjoyed. Thank you for that. But Father, give me guidance and wisdom in how to steward that that you've given me. And then lastly, you may be here this morning and say, I know God has called me to serve Him in a certain way. Can I just plead with you? Serve Him in that way. But take your gifts and talents and right now, if you need to do it fresh this morning, say, God, I know I'm supposed to serve you, but I don't ever want to depend on my ability. I lay it all at your feet. I can't do anything. can't even walk, God, unless you supply the power. And I want you to use anything in my life. I want to serve you. Father, would you go with us today? Thank you for your word. I pray that we would glean from it. Lord, whatever is needed in each one of our individual lives, Lord, I pray that we would just chew on it, meditate, let it impact our life in the coming days this week. Lord, may we be found faithful just getting alone with you and just not leaving until you show up and we sense your presence like really authentically. Lord, let us be a church that does that regularly every day, setting aside all the other blessings to pursue that greatest blessing. Lord, let us be worshipers. Let our service flow from our worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'll see you Wednesday night. Have a great week.